Welcome to Pivot, where we talk with leading event promoters, brand marketers, destinations, and fun development experts on how their work has changed and continues to change as a result of the pandemic. We will explore creative ways these industries have adjusted to these unpredictable times. You'll have an inside look at how organizations and large-scale events are strategically changing to meet today's new normal. It's a look back as well as a look to the future and the dynamic days ahead. Please welcome host Tavi Fulkerson, founder of the Fulkerson Group, a sponsorship and marketing agency based in Detroit, Michigan. Today, I'd like to welcome Jason Huvar, who is president of the Movement Electronic Music Festival, as well as Paxahow, which does a lot of exciting concerts and productions here in Detroit. So welcome, Jason. Thanks, Tabby. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad that we have an opportunity to talk today because there's many things we can talk about. Movement is really a phenomenal electronic music festival. And I think that many people listening would be very interested in knowing more about the history of how movement got started. It is a rich history, so share it with us. Well, electronic music, you know, goes back a long, long way. And Detroit has very significant roots in the late 80s and early 90s, especially. Uh, Detroit became very influential to electronic dance music around the world. And as some of our local artists were traveling, these festivals and festival environments started to pop up across Europe and other places. And they wanted to see something like that happen here back home. So originally started in the year 2000 as a fundraiser uh, initiative for the city of Detroit, which gave it a three-year launching pad. And after that, the city really wanted to keep it in the hands of the uh, music community. So they attempted over the next few years to work with a couple of artists. But it just proved to be more challenging because these artists are touring the world and aren't really built to produce large events. And in 2005, we had the opportunity to produce a stage for Kevin Saunderson. And when uh, when he retired, we we wrote a letter to the mayor's office and, and petitioned that, that we took over management. So after that, we found ourselves in a series of conversations trying to redraw the business plan and try to create a new sustainable model. And we relaunched the festival as Movement Festival in 2006. And we've been managing the event ever since. How many people came to the first movement? Well, the festival grounds hold about 40,000. So, you know, we usually like to use the number 30,000, give or take, depending on weather, climate, other issues per day. So when you start to count attendance coming in and out and things of that nature, when we stopped counting, we were we were calling attendance at about 100,000 a year. That's fantastic. You may not realize it, but I went to movement a couple of times a long time ago. And I must say, I probably was at least 20 years older than everybody that was there. But it was it was absolutely fantastic. It's truly a great event. Now, is 2019 the last year that you've been able to hold a live event? Yes. When the pandemic struck in, in late 2019, we were getting our news, you know, in very, very small you know, doses. We didn't know what was happening. A lot of people started to develop these plans of, you know, maybe it'll be two weeks, you know, maybe it'll be six weeks. You know, that turned into obviously, you know, something that has lasted much, much longer. So our last event was 2019 and we canceled 2020. I want to say just about six or eight weeks before. That was... <laughs> Absolutely painful. In 2019, how many people did you have attending the festival at that time? About the same. We don't over 
crowd the festival grounds, so we usually call attendance, you know, sold out on Saturday later in the afternoon. We still have a very large walk-up, so we do about 75% of our tickets pre-sale and 25% walk-up. We usually stop right around that number. That's a lot of people, and, you know, to, to enjoy so many different musicians and artists, and people come from all over the world, don't they, to attend movement? Yeah, both the artists, the media, as well as the attendees. We definitely feel very strongly that we are Detroit's largest international tourism event. We've long been very proud of the fact that people take vacations in Detroit at the end of May. Very serious, serious fans, real pilgrimages. And that's one of the first things that a lot of our local media caught on was just the number of accents they would hear and people from all over the country and the world. And that that's one of the things that I think makes this such a crown jewel for the city is the fact that we attract uh, so much positive attention from around the world. 2006 to 2019, there's a couple of generations in there. Has the demographic changed over all those years? The generations do change. One of the things about you know electronic music that we have found is that most of the fans are fans for life. So when we see the next generation, we have, you know, for the first time see people that we've known for a very long time showing up with their kids and then their kids are getting older and then their kids are dancing. And it is uh, it's the only event that I've ever been to like that in the world where the audience does not stay the same age. The original fans just get a little wiser and then the new fans are, are brought into the scene and and, uh, and they evolve uh, as we did. So it's really kind of a, a neat thing to watch and, and be a part of. That's so cool. So it's a very diverse group of people, diverse group of generations from all over the world. When you had to cancel the festival six weeks out, that had to have been just a shocker. Yeah, I mean, it was a very scary time. It was really scary for all the reasons we can understand. I mean, the live industry was totally decimated for safety reasons. It, it wasn't like anything slowed down. It just stopped one day. We were scared, obviously, for our business model and what this meant for the future. The festival had been getting you know, more successful every year. Our team had been growing every year. Our ideas were evolving every year. And for that to just stop was really scary because there's so many moving parts uh, you know, it's like slamming on the brakes and everything from the, you know, from the from the seats comes up into the dashboard. I mean, it was really very similar feeling to that. But also it was really scary because as people, we just didn't know exactly what this thing was and, and what it meant for the future. So there was a lot of uncertainty. And uh, that uncertainty, you know, has has been persistent in many ways. But then, especially during the lockdown, earth shattering, to say the least, the only solace in the whole deal was that everybody was feeling the same thing. Anyone who is a live promoter or did anything with with live events was feeling the exact same thing. So I guess the only you know comfort, for lack of a better word at the time, was knowing that everybody else was going to the exact same thing. You had to cut back, right? On staff, you had to probably refund money to ticket holders, and you're still going. I mean, that had to have been really, really challenging. Yeah, I mean, we've got a pretty persistent and resilient group and audience. So what we ended up doing, you know, was producing a, an online uh, concert for that first Memorial Day. We produced something called Movement at Home. We programmed the exact same hours that the festival would have been, 2 p.m. To, to midnight every day. We called on artists from all over the world for submissions and live streams uh, to, to be a part of it. And the reception was amazing. We started with a new service, which is called Twitch TV, which has kind of entered into the field with Facebook Live and YouTube. 
And we wound up with over over 30 hours of programming with a couple of very interesting after parties. We did this just because we knew we had to do something. Those dates are so sacred to movement, you know, and, and movement fans. And we had to do something. What we were not expecting is to get over 2 million views. Were you able to monetize that or was it just you just did it? At the time, we just did it because we knew that we had to. But another pleasant surprise and, you know, silver lining of the story is we also weren't expecting the phone to ring a couple of weeks later uh, from the people over at Amazon Music and Twitch TV that noticed the listenership and noticed the diversity of our programming and introduced us to a, a new music program that they were launching and asked us to be a part of it. So this effort, although it was very aggressive and risky, you know, financially and, you know, at the time, uh, earned us a, an agreement with Twitch TV to develop a, a channel uh, right out of Detroit here. And that opportunity allowed us to keep everybody employed. That's the silver lining, right, that people look for when you're going through challenging times. And that's still going, that program, isn't it? Yeah. In the launch, we broadcasted over 150 artists, and we programmed live five hours a week. Uh, Four hours we did in a controlled set, and one hour we did in a uh, remote setting. And we did that uh, pretty steadily all the way through the end of May of this year when we were allowed to uh, do some in-person events again. But you weren't really able to have the Movement Festival to the extent that it was no. uh, in 21. You still had to, to had to kind of stand down. Yeah, this year we, we called it micro-movement. We had a, an outdoor venue that we were broadcasting from and were permitted a very small audience. Again, incredible artist participation, incredible online support. And uh, shortly thereafter that, we were allowed to, to do slightly larger events. And then, uh, as you know, in July, we were allowed to do uh, some indoor events again. But, yeah, we were we were unable to do our, our thing at Hart Plaza, um, so to speak, and we're, we're really really anticipating uh, being able to do it again in 2022. I suspect you might just be overwhelmed with people interested in attending next year, given that it's been two years. But I'm thrilled to hear that you had such a broad reach all over the world. I know one of the things that you have talked to me about is how you had to refund some ticket holders and and really how challenging that was. And it really just came to fruition recently, didn't it, that you were able to really take care of all those people through the help of the government, I believe. I would almost say those people took care of us. We've had a really, really strong allegiance in our audience, and we've had a lot of people that that held on to their tickets. The the percentage of people that that asked for for refunds right away, even through the scariest times here, was much, much smaller than than average than almost any other event I've ever spoken to. So our our audience was truly there to support us and and, and hang on and, and allow us the ability to continue operating as we tried our darndest to plan for the future. I mean, we spent over a year in the office basically just changing dates uh, when it came to the to the live stuff. I mean, we would just change dates and then we would change them again and we would change them again. And we would continuously communicate honestly and openly with our audience and they continuously supported and, and showed us favor. So recently, uh, just because of a, of a program that, that we did apply for related to the live entertainment industry with the government, the federal government, we were granted the ability to uh, address uh, those people in the in this in the sense of a of a refund and, and being able to sort of restart, if you will. And for that, we're incredibly grateful, not just for the program 
and our acceptance uh, in the program, but really, really to these, you know, uh, 6,000 people that, that held onto their tickets, you know, for over a year and a half. I mean, that, that's just incredible allegiance to the city of Detroit and, and to this music and, and to this event. And with without them, I don't know exactly where we would have, you know, ended up or what we would have been able to do. But with them, we were able to, to survive and get us out on the other side of this thing. So, you know, being able to address that and, then, and they are now obviously, as you can imagine, in a very special category for us. Yes, I bet. And that says a lot about you, your team, and the love that people feel, the affinity people feel for movement and electronic music. There were a number of live concert promoters that didn't make it. You've gotten through the worst of it, it sounds like. You know, it's funny. I was I was speaking to someone recently, and it's funny you say that because we don't think of it that way. Because we just, you know, we're, we come to work every day. We got our blinders on every day, and we're trying really hard to to be the best that we can, given whatever our abilities and and uh, permission at the time, at the day. And, it's, and it is still changing by the day. But I was speaking to someone last week that literally said, "You're underscoring what kind of resilience you guys have, have already." you know, demonstrated because of the fact that you're on the other side of this thing when many people didn't make it. And, you know, we've got a lot of friends in bars and restaurants that, that just, you know, either cut and run or collapsed or just got exhausted or found other jobs. And, you know, rebuilding the live event community is, is going to be a challenge. But I, I'm very thankful that our team is still intact and, and we still have so many great relationships with our contractors and artists in the city of Detroit. And, and we know that uh, we will be able to, you know, reemerge from this on the other side when it is, is safe for all of our attendees. Yeah, and you really already have done it. And Jason, it's like, it's heroic. <laughs> it really is. And, and you're very modest about it. And Paxahow, the live concert promoter division that you also are president of, also produces a, a number of other events, including the Detroit Jazz Festival, which we have been involved with for several years. It's a great story to hear, and I can't wait until next May. The Electronic Music Festival movement has such a rich history with Detroit. Are many of the artists that are involved from Detroit? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we were granted the opportunity to produce this television station for Twitch is that Detroit is just still so rich with artist density. Out of those 150 that we promoted, over 100 of them were right here in the city. I mean, we're, we're constantly promoting new up-and-coming and established artists. My two best friends and I have been working on this just under three decades, and many of our senior roster artists are people we've been working with just as long. Detroit's a really special place when it comes to, you know, a lot of things. And, and you know, electronic music is, is without question one of those things. And yes, to answer your question, yes, a lot of artists that we work with on a regular basis are from Detroit. And a lot of artists from Detroit influence artists from around the world that we also work with. So when, when we invite these artists in here as guests, um, they feel very, very privileged and excited uh, you know, to be here and to play in the city. It's just great how you're promoting the city, how you're promoting electronic music. But what about you, Jason? How did you come through this? This is not easy. Many of us in the event business talk about how we kind of have PTSD <laughs> from just all the challenges that we faced, but you have survived and gotten to the other side. Just a matter of being persistent, like you said, right? Getting to the office every day with your great team. Yeah, you're not wrong in the in the PTSD conversation. I think a lot of us haven't been able to slow down to measure that part, but it is different. It's kind of like anything else when, when people tell you life goes by and in the blink of an eye. For a very long time, this felt like quicksand. And 
now a lot of the lockdown stuff is behind us and we see these events popping back up again and the phones start ringing again and, and you know people feeling comfortable you know going to certain places again but when you've been in the in the eye of the storm you know the, the entire time from the beginning and this whole thing is just kind of slowly gone by and and now you're trying to make sure like is it is it really gone by is there still something else you know we've got a plan for so it, there isn't really a a comfort yet, if you will. There's a great sense of responsibility and there is no comfort or resolve yet because we're still not completely through this thing. And we don't know exactly the future holds. We don't know exactly what, what else there is to lose. And at the same time, we're, we're trying to keep our heads up. We're trying to stay diligent. We're trying to be good leaders and, and good friends and, and good family to those that, that need us the most. But I maybe on the far, far side of this, I can answer that question better. I happen to have the privilege of knowing your father, and I know he, know he has passed, and he was a car dealer and a wonderful, wonderful human being. I really think that your dad would be incredibly proud of you, Jason, and what you've been able to accomplish, and that we're so lucky to have you in Detroit, really. And thank you so much for talking to us today. I appreciate your kind words, Tavi, and this was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pivot, with a new interview posted on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. To listen to new episodes, or if you'd like to be a guest on this program, visit www.fulkersongroup.com for more information. Until next time, don't forget to renew, reinvent, and energize.